Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast, brought to you by the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Svi Hirschfield, and I'm excited to be here with you each week for a thoughtful and engaging discussion about the weekly Torah portion. Each episode, I'll be joined by a wonderful faculty member from Pardes to dive deep into the text, exploring its relevance and insights for our lives today. We will aspire to be creative, personal, and a little brave as we leave no stone unturned, seeking to bring out meaning and significance from each Parsha. And here's a request from us. If you enjoy our conversations, please take a moment to leave a five-star review for the podcast. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important discussions. So whether you're a seasoned Torah scholar or a curious beginner, we invite you to join us on this journey of learning and discovery. With that, let's dive in and explore this week's Parsha together. Hello, everyone. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. If it's your second time, welcome back. We are already on Parshat Bamidbar, which, by the way, incidentally, is my Bar Mitzvah Parsha, for those of you who are curious. It's been more than a few decades. Don't want to say how many. But I am thrilled that today we have Rabbi Jonathan Lehner. Now, the most important things about Rabbi Lehner is that he's a Pardes alum, and he happens to be married to the director of Pardes North America. In addition to that, he also is a Rav and has a shul in Prospect Heights in Brooklyn, which if you're in that area, I'm sure he would love to meet you in person and you can come visit. Welcome, Rabbi Lehner. We're thrilled you could join us. Thanks for having me. My Parsha is actually Nasa, so we're back to back. My bar mitzvah. Wow. So in theory, we're only a couple months apart. But since this is a podcast, I can get away with that. But if you were watching, you'd realize <laughs> I look old enough to be uh, John's father. Okay. So we're going to jump in. Parshat Bamid Bar. I want to start off. When I heard you were going to do this Parsha, I'm thinking, that is so brave. Because I look at this Parsha, and what comes to mind are an endless list of names, genealogies, the organization of the camp of the Israelites, which tribe, which family, where are the Levites situated? And I'm thinking, what is my takeaway here? What's going to be relevant? And yet here you are filled up with some Torah to share with us. So, John, where do you go with this Parsha? It's a great question. Totally agree with you. If you're just opening up a Chumash and you're reading through it, you'd be like, okay, this would not be the best Parsha to do a podcast on or do a Devar Torah. I probably would put it up there with like Tazria Mitzora level, but it has its own challenges. I've always felt that each Parsha is in conversation with the Jewish calendar. They're not always exactly synchronized, you know, one Parsha following, you know, on this Shabbos. But from my understanding, Parsha Bamidbar always proceeds Shavuot. Okay, so therefore, if I'm following your logic, there's going to be something in this Parsha that's going to speak to us about how we are meant to accept or receive Torah. Yeah, that's my takeaway, which is something was established for some reason that we need to read this Parsha as a way of preparing ourselves and thinking more deeply, critically about what it means for us today to receive Torah, what it means for us to really acquire Torah anew. Okay, so please, by all means, get us there. <laughs> all right. So I think one of the first things that jumps out to me is the idea of the flags, right? That each of the tribes have their own flags that are associated with colors 
and symbols. And, you know, I think at first glance, you would be like, okay, what's important about that? It's a flag. Seems pretty standard. This is where this tribe is situated. This is where this tribe is situated. But I came across a beautiful piece of Torah by the Slona Marebi, the Nativo Shalom, who says along the lines of the flags are actually an incredible gift from Hashem to the Jewish people and actually demonstrates Hashem's love. So then you're like, well, why is giving a flag such a great sign of love. Yeah, that's where I was going to go, actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I preempted so Thank you for doing my job. I appreciate that. I can rest <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, take it easy. So he goes along the lines and says, the flags and the colors reveal to that specific tribe what their specific mission and purpose is in the world. And I believe he ends his whole board by saying, is there any greater gift in the world for a person to realize their unique purpose and contribution to the world? So I just want to follow with this. So first of all, it seems like a couple things are happening. First, the idea of why we have tribes, right? Why can't we just be the people of Israel? And the idea that we are divided and organized in this tribal way. And it seems like what you're suggesting is it's not only organization. But the different tribes and their different symbols and colors actually represents some type of intrinsic, important differences that each of these tribes carry and that their missions, even though they're all part of the people of Israel, their missions are going to be different. Totally. As a sports fan, I often think about teams, right? So everyone on a team wears the same jersey, right? But they have unique positions within that, right? The point guard is the point guard, the shooting guard is the shooting guard, the center is the center. And usually, in my opinion, teams are most successful when the players understand their role and don't step outside of that. So speak a little bit about how that understanding of ourselves or our own unique role, how does that for you help you connect the idea of receiving this Torah which I guess we're always meant to believe is meant to unify us or it's one mission for all of us. How do you understand the interplay between those two concepts? Well, I think, you know, the idea of the oneness in Torah is certainly a big concept. I'm thinking about the Rashi, about how the Jews were only able to receive the Torah through this unification that they had before. One heart. We all had one heart, which I imagine people today are having a very hard time to imagine. But Rashi says there is one time in our history, at least one heart. We did it. We did it. And I mean, I think as a way of thinking, well, how could we receive the Torah again? That seems like a good formula in terms of thinking more deeply about how we can be more unified. But within that unity conversation, the uniqueness of each individual often gets lost, right? And I think, especially for us in the modern world where individuality is emphasized as a real core, instead of kind of throwing that away, I feel that it's worth embracing that and saying, what do I as an individual Jew, what's my unique role and purpose and contribution? And when I can embrace that, I can really enhance how the Jewish people as a whole can perhaps receive the Torah. 
As an Orthodox rabbi, does that are you ever worried about the follow-up question to that when, you know, on the one hand, you would want to encourage originality and individuality and finding our own unique path? On the other hand, the Torah is also mitzvot, which seem to be a collective, something that we are all bound to. And I'm wondering what you do with that or how you think about that. Yeah, certainly orthodoxy complicates that notion, but I look to a lot of Hasidic wisdom. I think the Noam Eli Melech, Rebbe Eli Melech of Lezhinsk, talks about how each generation has their own kind of specific mitzvah that they kind of are supposed to be working on. And then I believe he even says each individual also has that as a way of saying, listen, you're not exempt from doing all the mitzvot, but to say that you as an individual relate to one specific mitzvah, I think is important, right? That you need to focus on that one more than all the others. Not saying you don't have to do the others, but this one certainly should have more of your attention. Or maybe do it with your own special kavanah, or maybe bring your own understanding to it that hasn't come out into the world yet. You know, sometimes I get the impression that what's helpful about this Torah that you're sharing is we sometimes, I think, are so focused on just receiving the Torah in this passive way of trying to hold on to or remember. That was my yeshiva experience. You don't know enough. You don't know enough. You don't know enough. And it was hard to make space for cultivating what my own take was. Yeah. I mean, in yeshivish culture, when you talk about giving Torah, we usually use that exact language of like, do you want to give over Torah? Right? Like I have wisdom and I'm now giving it to you. Right. There's no individuality or expressiveness in that. It's just a reception of it. I'll be even more critical before we go on to another point, just because you stirred my passion. Friends of mine and I call it the source shear, where the only way you're allowed to say something is if you can find somebody else who said it before you, someone more authoritative. And then you're, quote unquote, allowed to bring something new, as long as it's not new. Yeah, like as a rabbi in an Orthodox shul, you know, people really look to you to be quoting everything that is possible. And I've played around with that over the years, and you wouldn't be amazed. You know this. If you start off a Devar Torah, a Shior by quoting a Tosfot or a Gemara, all of a sudden your legitimacy, you know, just skyrockets, which is, I understand, but at the same time, where does that uniqueness and creativity and exploring Torah come from if you're always bound for your starting point to be what somebody else said hundreds of years ago. Yeah, I think that in fact, legitimacy goes up, but interest probably often goes down. I'd love one time for you to put on a source sheet, you know, authored by Rabbi Jonathan Lehner, Rav of Prospect Heights, you know, like uh, <laughs> and put it on there. There, that's a source. You know, I can quote the Kutzker. I can quote myself as well. Beautiful. So part of accepting Torah is not just about accepting passively, but finding our own voice. And each tribe represents a different voice, a different talent, a different focus. And yet here they are all organized and moving together. They somehow figured out how to combine these multiple voices and still be a coherent group. It feels like also laying the foundation for pluralism as well, right? Which is, I think, my understanding is everyone has their unique truth and way of expressing their 
Jewishness. And instead of being critical of how they're doing it, it's an acceptance of saying, listen, they have a really important role to play. I may not be the one who feels comfortable doing X, Y, and Z, but I know that it needs to be done and it serves a larger purpose. Beautiful. I'm going to come back with that later, but first I want to hear some more insights how this Parsha is getting ready for Shavuot. Okay, so I believe the Parsha also opens up with a census, which it does is incredibly boring. <laughs> <gasps> I didn't say that, folks. That was Rabbi Jonathan Leaner of the Shul <laughs> and Prospect it. Heights that said it. Svi Hirschfeld thinks every word is so fascinating. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> every I'm sorry. word. Just had to be clear about that for insurance purposes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take liability for it. So unless you're an accountant, I guess also maybe you could find some tour in it. But if you're just looking at it casually, you know, it seems repetitive, hard to access. What's the point of this? Rashi, though, I think sets the stage for kind of understanding it in a much more nuanced and sophisticated way other than, okay, they're just doing a census here. Rashi says, anytime the Torah does a census, again, it's a way of Hashem showing his love for the Jewish people because you really only count people if you care about them, right? If you don't care about people, then... There's no accounting for them, right? So the very fact that Hashem is doing a census or commanding it seems to indicate that every person is needed. And maybe not only needed, but even loved. And loved, yeah. And I think Rashi uses that language again of love versus just being seen. Wow. So in part of Matan Torah, part of receiving the Torah, if I understand you correctly, is the awareness that we are loved not just commanded, not just afraid of God, not just overwhelmed by God. You know, a lot of us think of the Har Sinai moment, the Mount Sinai moment. We all tend to that Midrash. God held a mountain over the Jewish people. There's thunder and lightning and fire, and it's scary as can be. But what you're saying is underneath all the pyrotechnics, maybe, we have to remember that God loves us as well. Yeah, and that God needs us. Again, I know I'm focusing a lot on the individual here, but I think this idea that the Baal Shem Tov, I think, really first introduced of how each Jew is a unique letter in the Torah, right? And just as if one letter of the Torah is missing, it's puzzle, so too, if one Jew isn't counted, per se, right, this Torah that we're trying to rewrite is also puzzle or deficient. Everybody counts. Yeah. And, you know, as a part of my work as a rabbi who is often kind of looking at the fringes and bringing people in who are somewhat skeptical of being Jewish or expressing their Judaism, I find a lot of inspiration in this, which is we need you. Like, if you're not here, something is deficient within my own understanding of Torah. Okay, I must put you on the spot here a little bit because what you said is very powerful and I want to get a sense of how you manage that day to day because I feel that in many ways, all structures seem to bring standards and by definition, a lot of judgment. Who's in, who's out, who's performing, who's not performing, are we doing what's required? And I think Torah has that effect also, right? Having a law 
sort of pushes us into this place of worrying about standards, worrying about structure, who is meeting the requirements. And here you're saying we have to somehow find balance to tell people no matter what they matter, no matter what they count. And I'm wondering how you as an Orthodox rabbi, who I know is engaged in relationship with both Orthodox Jews, non-Orthodox Jews, Jews of all backgrounds, how you balance that of, on the one hand, trying to advocate for a shared framework and a standard, but not making people feel judged all the time. Yeah, it's a tightrope, certainly, and you can fall off and get burned, and it happens. But I think the risk is worth the reward for both people who are wondering why they're needed, and also from more traditional Orthodox Jews, a part of my community, which is, you need these people, right? Even though, listen, you may not rush to sit next to them at Shul because they're not, you know, identified and look the same as you, but what they're going to contribute to your understanding of what it means to be Jewish is going to be, I think, worthwhile. And what I've tried to do is create platforms for that to happen. So whether it's inviting some of these people to share words of Torah, to give a Devar Torah shul, and for those people who are in the pews, well, not really pews, they're folding chairs, but for those traditional Jews to, to hear somebody from a less traditional background speak about Torah in a new way, I've often found that it actually opens new pathways for those traditional Jews to say, whoa, I didn't really think that Torah could be accessed and understood in that way. Yeah, everyone's so busy looking at their own flag, you're kind of reminding them, hey, there's some flags over there that you could really look at and learn from if you worry a little bit less about who has the right and who doesn't have the right to speak or to share. And you said it first, like if Hashem's intention was not having this pluralism and diversity, then there wouldn't be 12 tribes, right? It would have been everybody together as one. And even within the structure of flags, you have Kohanim, Levim, and whatnot, obviously. Yeah, we're confusing people that way, all these different names and titles and roles and jobs. So the Book of Bamidbar literally means in the desert. It's a great title for a book, right? Really good title for the book. Calling it the book of numbers in English like loses the whole thing. It actually, it like pushes you right into the part of the Parsha that's so difficult instead of that beautiful first word. And Midbar, as I know you know in Hasidut and Midrash, can also be Midaber to speak. So I know you have some Torah about what we're meant to take away from the desert and becoming a people in the desert. Yeah, I think all of the books, translations, by the way, do a real disservice to understanding it, right? Bereshit, well, Genesis is somewhat close, but Shmot, for example, Exodus, you would say like, well, that's the main theme of the book, but actually names and identity is hugely revealing of the book. I would say the same thing with Bamidbar also, right? Like, yes, it is about numbers and the accounting, and we found meaning in that. But this idea of, and I think Aviva Zornberg translates by Midbar as bewilderment, right? That it's in a state of unknown, right? That the stage is set for this is going to be something different. 
right? They are in the wilderness and everything that you associate with the wilderness is going to be huge to understanding the Esparcia. So how is my being in the wilderness or our being in the wilderness meant to facilitate our receiving of Torah? So I think there's a couple of ways. One is what happens to a person when you're in the wilderness, right? As somebody who lives in Brooklyn, that's not obviously uh, something I connect to all the time, (laughs) you know, being in a vulnerable situation. But when the opportunities do present themselves, right? I think that's what it's supposed to evoke within us, which is if you're on a journey, right? And a desert especially, you don't even have trees to protect you. You have no shade. You are really susceptible to the environment. It would seem to me that the Torah is saying to be in that state of openness and vulnerability is a prereq for receiving the Torah in a deeper way. So part of receiving Torah, I can't feel in control. I can't feel like I have all the answers. I can't feel like all the power sits with me. The desert's going to force me to open up to the idea that I'm indeed vulnerable, I'm limited, and I need help. And that's antithetical to what a lot of human experience is, which is I want to control things. I want to create environments that are make me feel safe and protected and somewhat enclosed. And I think the Torah here is saying pretty much the opposite, that if you want to really receive Hashem's word, then you need to put yourself in a position where you are open and have less control. Yeah, our natural desire for control When you think of control, even in our body language, it's a podcast, so obviously me demonstrating this is completely unhelpful, but this idea that we tense up, we close up, our defensive posture is one of contraction. And what you're saying is part of getting to Torah is overcoming that contraction and finding a place of openness. Yeah. And again, I'm sure there is a lot to be said about finding Torah in nature and in the wilderness. But for folks who don't access that, I think it's really saying you need to get out of the comforts of your own environment, right? So if you sit in one Beit Midrash all the time, that's great, but there's going to be some sort of new discovery of Torah if you're brave enough to step out of there and enter into a new space. So you got to step out of your comfort zone. That's what you're telling me. Comfort zones do not help us. Which isn't easy. I don't do this very often. It's hard. It really is. But I have found it when I do find the courage to do so, I find myself just really rewarded by the experience. I often, in Brooklyn, wander into different, you know, Hasidic steeples and whatnot. And it's very scary. I don't present myself as a Hasid. So when I walk into these places, you know, I really stand out. And once I overcome that initial anxiety of being judged and feeling different, I have found those experiences in those spaces to be really enhancing to me. I'm also wondering if you saw this in your community, that life under a pandemic also may be revealed to a lot of us or broke that illusion of control that many of us think we have or want to have. Yeah, and even as somebody who doesn't love Zoom and obviously prefers something in person, I actually think people were able to leave their comforts of their own communities and tap into different places around the world. 
I had friends who were, you know, joining Shabbat services, you know, with somebody in Los Angeles or a class from somebody in a totally different part of the country in which they normally wouldn't have been able to connect with. Wow. All right. I'm going to now throw the tough question at you. So you've made some powerful points, right? That we we need to appreciate difference. We need to appreciate the other voices, the other perspectives. We're constructed to build a Torah community that is not univocal, but has multiple voices, multiple perspectives, multiple flags. And that's part of maintaining our openness and also reminding ourselves of our vulnerability. The fact we don't have all the answers. We don't have all the perspectives. We need others. And I can't help but think about that beautiful vision that you described. And then I look around at what's happening in Israel right now without taking sides, but this sense that where's the shared Torah? You know, I'm imagining in the Midbar, the Mishkan at least was in the middle. So as all these different flags and different tribes are moving, there's still something binding or connecting or orienting them in connection to one another. And I'm wondering, as you look at the Jewish world today, whether it's in Israel or in the United States or anywhere for that matter, what is your sense about where we're at? Do you feel like we have a unified structure? Do you feel like we have a way of connecting to one another? Do we have a shared Torah on some level that connects us? Told you it was going to be a hard question. That is the question. As somebody who has been observing what's been going on in Israel from you know, my phone or the internet, the images are both disheartening and very inspiring, right? Because you know that there's so much rupture within Israeli society, but then at the same time, you see hundreds of thousands of people marching together, seemingly with kind of one vision. But putting that aside, I think and this may sound cliche, but it rings true. It's a cliche for a reason, which is where can we find our points of commonality, right? I'm not in Israel now, but I imagine the last couple of days or weeks, there has been probably a greater sense of, ah, dude, whether it was around Pesach or Yom HaShoah, Yom HaZikaron, Yom HaTzmud. Now, these are Obviously, different groups relate to those days differently, but I imagine people who may have really disagreed a couple of weeks ago were able to actually celebrate or even mourn together. I hope, but I think that it's scary because it's not clear. When does the difference become too great and you lose that connection that's holding the framework together? And I worry about that in lots of different directions. And I do come back to that Rashi of being a people with one heart. And it does make me wish we had a little bit more of that. But we have to push ourselves. And obviously, everybody has red lines, right, where you feel this is just too far. But no one says that it's us or it's forbidden to get really close to that red line, right? And probably the closer you get, the better, right, in terms of thinking about how we can be more cohesive. So in Brooklyn, one of the great aspects of living in this community is how diverse and really diverse the different communities and groups are. But at the same time, there does seem to be mutual respect and even moments of collaboration. So as an example, on Shavuot, 
I think it's maybe 15 or 20 different organizations, shuls, minyanim, have a collective tikkun leil, right? And at first you could say, this is going to be impossible, right? Well, Because you have some Jews who want to have music and are going to want to watch film and teach classes through multimedia, which would obviously make Orthodox Jews uncomfortable. How are we going to have the learning? Who's going to teach? And I've participated in this in the last seven, eight years. Everybody just pushes themselves. Again, I have my red line, but I'm willing to get really close to it in the sense of, okay, next door, maybe they are doing something that I personally would not do on this day, right? In terms of technology or whatnot, but that doesn't take away from what I'm doing in the other room and it's not taking away what people are doing in the other room. I think the main takeaway and we try to show is it is possible, right? It is possible to do it. I can still learn something from the people in that other room and I have something to gain from them. That is the night I always learn the most. Like I have my Shabuot class that I always teach and that class is always attended by people who never would come into my shul, right? For whatever reason, you know, the mechitza is overly divisive, but because we're in learning and we're doing it together, I'm confronted with them. And the questions they ask are just so radically different from what, you know, my own community members would ask that for me, it also makes me rethink the text that I'm learning. Beautiful. Well, I have to say, I'm a little worried because I always thought, you know, accept the Torah, Nasev and Ishma, we will do and we will hear. It's just about obedience and authority. And here you are teaching us a lesson that actually, if we want to really receive the Torah as a Jewish people, it's about finding our vulnerability, realizing our limits, realizing our difference and appreciating our difference finding our own uniqueness, and really trying to stay open to all of that and trusting, and this is where I think the piece, the amuna here for me that you've raised is we can do all that and the structure won't collapse. We can have multiple flags there and the structure will not disappear. We won't get lost in the desert just because we have multiple flags. I feel like that's the takeaway you're offering us here that I find very inspiring. Yeah, that we're not going to be diminished by other people's expression of Judaism and learning. In the space that I occupy in Brooklyn, there's so many different people, rabbi, you could use the language of, oh, we're competing, right? We're competing for people and power. But my notion of approaching this has always been the more people doing Judaism, the better for everybody, right? Everyone is going to benefit no matter what if more people are involved. And in my tiny slice, it's proven to be right, but I think it could serve as a model for a lot of other Jewish communities around the world. 
Okay, well, hopefully our discussion together will push some more people out there who might listen to this to take a few more risks and go down that road. I can't thank you enough for your time, for your wisdom, for your energy and inspiration. And you've given us a lot to think about, both in terms of the Parsha, which, as I told you before, is a tough one, and especially in terms of getting ready for Shavuot. Do you remember what you spoke about on your bar mitzvah for this Parsha? I have absolutely no recollection of that, I am sorry to say. But I don't think anyone is missing out too much. That that much okay. I can assure you. So, John, <laughs> thank you again very much. It was a pleasure a talking Torah with you. And I hope we have other opportunities in the future. And I hope you come to Parday soon and visit us, maybe share some Torah in person. Amen. Take care. Okay. Well, everyone, on that note, have a Shabbat Shalom. And have a wonderful Shavuot. And thank you to our wonderful guest. And I hope you will continue listening and tell other people about this podcast and expand our reach so we can expand this conversation further. Thank you so much for joining us. And thanks again to Rabbi John Leader. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.